Thursday, this past Thursday, was one of those nights in our home after one of those days where we had a hectic and chaotic day of running the kids all over the place. As they get older before they can drive, it seems as if we're the Uber or Lyft drivers of all of our kids. And I was helping my son, who he, I helped coach one of my son's soccer team. And that, along with another commitment, kept me out until 7 o'clock. And Tiffany, my wife, had a meeting to go to as well. And so it was one of those nights that as I drove into the driveway, she drove out of our neighborhood, and I was arriving as she was leaving. And so then, as I parked in the driveway, my cell phone sprang to life with this message from Tiffany. Call me if you need ideas for dinner. Now... In that moment, my mind goes blank. I never have any ideas for dinner. When I look in my pantry, it's a load of ingredients. There is no dinner in there, and it's magic to me that Tiffany can put something together that we can eat, and it tastes good. That's amazing. What you must know about me is that I'm good at a very short list of things. One is driving. I'm a wonderful driver. Two, I can train dogs. Three, I can read, and four, I can eat. But that's about it. Now, at the top of the list of the things that I'm horrible at, food preparation of any kind is at that, is the top of the list. So I'm not just hapless, I'm helpless in the kitchen and hopeless. And so when I got that text, I had no ideas. So I called Tiff, she gave me ideas, she helped me, and it was Little Caesars to the rescue with the $5 hot and ready. Fortunately for us, it was both hot and ready, and so I was able to get over there and come back, and my kids, they were going to eat that. Me, I wasn't going to have a hot and ready, a pizza that's been sitting there a couple hours. I was going to eat pasta. And so my wife said, listen, we've got some really good brown rice pasta in the pantry. All you need to do is boil water, throw sauce on it. We have meatballs, and boom, you've got spaghetti. So I thought I could do that. I knew it involved finding a pot, filling it with water, putting it on the stove, turning on the stove. Boom. Things are starting to happen in our kitchen. I'm thinking maybe I can have a, you know, a cooking show or something. And then all of, a sudden, I, all of a sudden, I began to look for the pasta. Um, and I knew that if my wife said the pasta is there, it's there because she knows where things are in the kitchen. So I had no backup plan. I look in the pantry on the bottom shelf, on the middle shelf, on the top shelf, on the shelf that we never put anything on, and I could not find the pasta, not anywhere. I looked for about 10 minutes, and there was no pasta of any kind. And so I had a lame salad. (laughs) Because the only other thing I can make is toast. And so after I ate the salad, I looked into the pantry and realized that the pasta is in a box. It's in a box. It's not in a bag. I'm looking for a bag of pasta. It was a box. And it wasn't hiding behind anything. It was right in the middle, in plain sight. I missed the pasta in plain sight. I missed it because I was looking for a plastic package. I was expecting something else. And as a result, I had a salad. A bit disappointing, but not tragic. I missed the pasta staring me in the face. It's one thing to miss pasta. It's another thing to miss Jesus. 
Missing Jesus is not just disappointing, but tragic. Today, we're going to meet two groups of people who miss Jesus, though he's right in front of them. And it's easy for us, all of us, though Jesus is right in front of us here in the pages of Scripture, to miss him. Maybe we're expecting Jesus to be something different. Maybe we're expecting them to come in different packaging. Maybe we're expecting something that we can't put our finger on, but it's easy to miss Jesus. And we find two groups that miss Jesus this morning. We must be aware that it is easy to miss Jesus. We must be aware that we have to take every opportunity to see Jesus for who He is in the Scriptures, to get to know Jesus, to embrace Jesus, so that we might follow Him. We must not miss this Jesus. Miss Jesus and nothing else you find even matters. And I hope none of us this morning miss him. None of us this morning miss Him. May we not miss Jesus, but may we worship Him as King. May we follow Him as King. We'll meet two groups of people who follow Jesus, who are with Jesus in His approach and then in His arrival. To understand where we are, I'm going to read beginning in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 11. So if you have your Bible, follow along with me as I read. Now, when they, near, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they, sent, and they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your presence this morning to be able to preach your word. Lord, we open your word, we look into your word, and we ask you to meet us this morning. We don't want this to be a mere intellectual exercise or just the thing that we do at almost 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. No, we want you to meet with us. We pray that you would. And I pray that there would be no one in this room who would miss you today. Be they Christians or non-Christians, be they followers or non-followers, may we all, may we all see you and none of us miss you. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Two points. First, his approach, his approach to Jerusalem. We see that in verses 1 through 10. As we've seen, Mark 11, well, as we will see, Mark 11 chronicles the last week, begins to chronicle the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Chapters 1 through 10 
cover around three years, his ministries, his ministry. There's no birth stories, but chapters 11 through 16 cover the last week of his life. And so Mark is telling us this week is the most important week in Jesus's life. If chapters 1 through 10 cover the first three years and chapters 11 through 16 covers the last seven days, Mark is doing all he can to say, pay attention. This week is the week that matters. This week is the most important week in the life of Jesus on this earth. If this book was set to music, it would be the kind of music that starts low and ominous and crescendos to get our attention. This week is the most important week since the first week of creation. And we join Jesus in Mark chapter 11 as he nears the end of the 18-mile walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, we've seen along the way, or at least Mark tells us along the way, there's quite a crowd surrounding him, and that's for two reasons. First, it's Passover time. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims even, come from all over Israel and flood into Jerusalem. These pilgrims were going to the place that every faithful Jew had to go to to celebrate Passover. Passover was the commemoration of Israel's liberty from slavery from Egypt. And so each year, pilgrims from all over Israel came to Jerusalem to celebrate that. And so hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would come to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking with those pilgrims to Jerusalem. The other reason that Jesus was gathering a crowd is because of what happened in Jericho, or at least on the outskirts of Jericho. The week before, last week when we were here, Bartimaeus, a man who was blind, sitting outside Jericho, called to Jesus, and Jesus gave him sight. He restored his eyes. And the miracle like that is going to get people's attention. Bartimaeus is in the crowd, walking with Jesus, trying out his new eyes, And people, and Jesus, there's a flood of people snaking toward Jerusalem. Now, when they get to the foothills of the Mount of Olives, Jesus sends two of his disciples to the small little hamlet on the the, um, side of the mountain called Bethphage with a very strange mission. Look at verse 2. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied. Now, when you think colt here, don't think small horse or Indianapolis colts, think donkey, male donkey. This colt on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus sends two of his disciples into Bethphage, tells them what would happen, tells them what to say, and they get the colt and bring. Jesus shows us that he is in complete control. Now, as he descends from the Mount of Olives down to Jerusalem, he is going to die. And it's going to seem like he's a victim of circumstance. It's going to seem like there's all kinds of things arrayed against him, that there are political powers and machinations against him that he's a complete victim of. But that's not true. Jesus is in complete control. He's in complete control of the, two, of the, the colt being tied up for the, the two disciples to come. He's also in complete control of his death. He is no mere pawn in a Jewish political power play. He had come to die. And so when the disciples get the donkey, they bring it to Jesus. And Jesus gets on the back of the donkey and begins to ride it. And he does this 
for one reason and one reason only. It wasn't because his feet were tired. It wasn't because he didn't have good shoes. He does it for one reason, to get on the back of the donkey. It's to get everybody's attention. When he jumps on the back of that donkey, he's saying, look at me. More importantly, he's saying, I have arrived. I am the long-awaited Messiah. Now, him riding a donkey seems a little bit strange as a transportation choice to you and to I. But he's saying, look at me. I'm your Messiah. The people knew this. There's a tradition of Jewish kings coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. The first to do it was David's son and successor, Solomon. And you can read about Solomon's arrival into Jerusalem in 1 Kings chapter 1 on the back of a donkey. But even more importantly, one of the last men who spoke for God, a prophet, visited Israel and said hundreds of years before that the Messiah would come and he would come in a certain way. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, that's Israel. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, that's Israel. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so when Jesus gets on the back of this colt, this foal of the donkey that Zechariah prophesied centuries before, the people who are walking with him to Jerusalem see what he's doing and they know what he's about. They're saying, oh, here Jesus is showing himself, this man from Galilee is showing himself to be the coming king we've been waiting for. It's the king that has been coming and we have been waiting for since Zechariah said this centuries before. The king is finally coming to us. Zechariah says, rejoice greatly, shout aloud, and that is exactly what the people did. Verse 9, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Hosanna in English means save us. That's the English translation. Hosanna, or save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All the pilgrims understood what Jesus was saying by his actions, and they began to shout, save us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the king promised in Zechariah was coming. He was coming to his town. He was coming to his city, and everybody within earshot of this crowd would have told the tale that Jesus, the Messiah, has come. The pilgrims were singing these songs. Now, these were do, they were doing more than just shouting things at random. There was a set of songs from Psalm 113 to 118 that the pilgrims would sing as they approached Jerusalem. These songs would kind of be a, they would be responsive kind of singing. You know, it's like when you're at a basketball game, maybe in high school, when one side, you're playing the other team, and one side says, we've got spirit, yes we do, we've got spirit, how about you? And then they point to the other side and they say, not much spirit here today. 
But you know what? What the, we got spirit yesterday. We got spirit. How about you? We got spirit yesterday. We got more. We got, you know that's how it ends up going back and forth, right? Well, a much more godly version of that is in Psalm 118, and we see. I'll show you what what would happen. And so in Psalm 118, the pilgrims are singing Psalm 118. They quote from Psalm 118 in Mark chapter 11, and they're singing this song as they approach Jerusalem. Psalm 118 verse 14. It would kind of go like this. The Lord is my strength and my song. And then another group would sing, He has become my salvation. Then another, the other group would sing, Glad songs of salvation. The next group would sing, Are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And so all the way down the mountain, people are singing this ask and answer kind of song. Back and forth and back and forth and echoing down the mountain into Jerusalem is this song. So let's try it. When I point to you, you say the next line, and we'll be like pilgrims walking to Jerusalem. The right hand of the Lord exalts. I shall not die, but I shall live. The Lord has disciplined me severely. And the culmination of that psalm is Hosanna. Or save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what they're singing. Now, they would have known the tune to Psalm 118. They wouldn't have had to pull out their, salt, their Bibles to kind of follow along. They knew the song. They knew the tune because in their nation, they would sing all of the psalms. Now, the people clearly understood that Jesus had come in the name of the Lord, that Jesus was the long-awaited king. They even go so far as writing a new verse. Verse 10 is a new verse that they pin on the spot to communicate that they understand that here is Jesus, the Messiah, come to bring his kingdom. Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. The people were singing of the kingdom of that greater son, Jesus. The greater son of David has come. The pilgrims were telling Jesus through song, we know who you are. You are the promised son of David, and we know that you are here to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And we're so excited about that, we're going to shout. We're going to sing. And you might be saying, well, just how did these people who seem so excited about singing and walking and shouting with Jesus miss him? You'll recall we said that there are two groups this morning that both miss Jesus. How do these pilgrims miss Jesus? How can it be said that these pilgrims who know who Jesus is, who sing about who Jesus is, who shout about him, how can it be said that they missed Jesus? Look at verse 10 and we'll show, I'll show you how. Here's the, song, here's the verse they wrote. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. What happened? The people, people were in a fever pitch. This exuberant crowd was coming with Jesus. What happened to the crowd? Where did they go? They melted away. Nothing happened. The king had come and the people left the king. 
These pilgrims were swept up in excitement. They were swept up in a moment of excitement and they missed Jesus. It seems as if they were willing to make Jesus king for a day and even celebrate his kingship, but they were not willing to follow him wherever he would go. They left him. None of the crowds stayed with him. They dispersed. They were happy to, to crown Jesus king as they walked toward Jerusalem, but they were not happy to follow this king wherever he went. They missed him. When they shouted, Hosanna, save us, they were probably meaning, please save us from Roman oppression. These pilgrims were looking for a revolutionary leader to release them from the yoke of slavery to Rome, and Jesus was not that kind of king. Jesus had come to release them from the yoke of slavery to sin and to death, and these people did not understand that they were, that they were enslaved either to sin or to death. And so when they say the coming king is here, they're thinking this king will lead us, will push the Romans out. These pilgrims were enthusiastic about Jesus, but he came in what you might call a different packaging. They wanted a political savior. And these pilgrims shouted and said and sung all the right words, and yet they missed Jesus. They were willing to make him king for a day, but not willing to follow him with all of their lives. They knew who he was. They sung praises to him, but they did not continue to follow him. Genuine followers of Jesus must continue to, be, to follow him. And there is no, you might be swept up in emotion, you might be swept up in enthusiasm, but enthusiasm and emotion responses are alone are insufficient. Following Jesus, taking one step and putting, putting one foot in front of the other is the only way for us to do this. The crowd of pilgrims should have continued to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus. Instead, they dispersed from Jesus. We will never see this group of pilgrims again throughout the book of Mark. They were now gone. They are dispersed. These people were happy to make Jesus king for a day, but that was it. They had no designs on following him. Is Jesus your king, or is he just king for a day? They missed him. They missed him, even though they knew who he was, because they were happy to make him king for a day. You know what they were saying in some sense? We need you sometimes, but not all the time. We'll make you king for a day, but that's it. The killed pilgrims, they weren't the only ones who missed Jesus in his procession toward Jerusalem. There was another group that missed him completely. That's in our second point, when we see Jesus' arrival, his arrival at the temple, in the last verse of Mark, or I'm sorry, in the last verse we're looking at today in Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Again, it's not so much what didn't happen, or what did happen, it's what didn't happen. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And you might think, well, who missed Jesus? That's the whole point. Psalm 118 tells us what should have happened. See, the people were singing Psalm 118. 
They sang, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We heard the crowd singing this. We heard the crowd shouting this. The sound of this song would have echoed down the mountain. And there should have been a response. That response should have come from the temple. Psalm 118 verse 26 says this, We bless you from the house of the Lord. And there was no blessing that came forth from the house of the Lord. Look again at verse 11. Let's see how the house of the Lord responded. And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The Lord comes to his house, to the house of the Lord, and the house of the Lord, which is meant to explode in blessing toward the Lord, is silent. Where is the blessing that should have echoed forth from the house of the Lord? Instead of exploding with shouts of joy, the temple was quiet. And the ones who are culpable for that are the leaders of Jerusalem, leaders of the temple. Where is this blessing? The Lord of his house, the Lord of his house has come, and the attendants of the temple missed him completely. Where the priests that were singing, we bless you from the house of the Lord. Where's the chief priest singing, we bless you from the house of the Lord. Where are the temple attendants singing, we bless you from the house of the Lord. Where are the Pharisees or the Sadducees singing, we bless you from the house of the Lord. Where are the religious leaders leading the people singing, we bless you from the house of the Lord. They're silent. They missed it. How ironic. There is no blessing for the Lord when the Lord comes to his very own house. And Jesus will actually curse the temple next when next we're in Mark because of its spiritual bankruptcy. See, the pilgrims missed him. They were happy to make him king for a day. Temple authorities didn't want to make him king at all. They missed him entirely. Not only would there be no blessing that would come from the house of the Lord, but the leaders of the house of the Lord would oppose the Lord. How ironic. Those that should have welcomed Jesus were silent. Those that should have made a way for him into the city were silent. Not just silent, they opposed him. Instead of the leading the people in shouts of acclamation toward Jesus, the king, they soon would lead people in shouts of crucify him. Crucify him in just a few days' time. By the end of the week. How did the temple leaders miss him? They should have welcomed him like the royalty he was. But how did they miss him? He came in different packaging, just like the pilgrims. They expected a political leader who was going to throw off the yoke of Rome. They expected a Messiah to arrive with a sword, but Jesus had a different plan. Now, the pilgrims, at least, they were willing to make Jesus king for a day. They were willing to shout and cry out and make a big deal and then go their own way. But the temple leaders weren't even willing to do that. They, while the pilgrims thought, hey, we can make you Jesus king for a day, The temple leaders, 
They said, we don't want to make you king at all. We don't need a king. They missed Jesus because they didn't think they needed him at all. Do you see the difference? Pilgrim says, we need you sometimes. The temple leaders say, we need you as king, never. And they both miss Jesus. They both missed Jesus. They missed Jesus for different reasons, but they missed him just the same. Are you missing Jesus? What does it look like for us to miss Jesus? Now, none of us are going to be swept up in enthusiasm as somebody rides a donkey into the temple. But you know what? We can, we can miss Jesus too. We can make Jesus king of our lives for a day. Or king of our lives, or at least part of our lives, not, not everything. How can we make Jesus king of our lives for just a day? Maybe it's when we set aside one day a week for him. Come on Sundays, we do our part, we sing, we listen to the preaching, we try not to fall asleep. Maybe we try to read the Bible throughout the week, but that's the day for Jesus the rest of the week. That's for me. We can make Jesus king for a day, but not king of our lives. You see, when we make Jesus just king for a day, we're telling Jesus, I need you sometimes. If we say we need him sometimes, we miss him. Another way to make Jesus just partial king is to say, you know what? All of my life, I will serve you, but there were th- there's this one part that I'm going to hold back. This one part of my life, this one maybe belief, this one practice, this one thing I do or hold on to that I won't give up, no matter what you say. And you make Jesus king of part of your life. You're like the pilgrim. Is Jesus king of your life or is he king of part of your life? Are you willing to make Jesus king for a day or king of over, over all things? You know, one of the things about the pilgrims as we look at them walking down the mountain into Jerusalem, at that moment, it was easy to follow Jesus. Everybody was excited. Everybody was shouting. Everybody was at just at, at, a, at a fever pitch. There was nobody providing opposition. There was nobody there saying, hey, guys, you know, life's going to get hard. Let's not get wrapped up in all this emotion. No one was saying that. And everybody was like, yeah, that's great. It's super easy to proclaim that you'll follow Jesus when you're around other people who say the same thing or when it's popular. But the way we can tell if we follow Jesus is if we follow Jesus throughout the whole week. None of the pilgrims circled around Jesus. None of the pilgrims that accompanied Jesus into town circled around him on Golgotha shouting Hosanna in the highest. If you, 
you know, one of the marks of people who are willing to make Jesus king of a part of their lives and not king of everything, or maybe Jesus king of a day, is people who pursue emotional experiences or put their faith in a feeling or an experience from the past. You see, these pilgrims, they could have said, I walked with Jesus into Jerusalem. I was there. I was at the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. I'm fine with Jesus. That's not enough. You can say the same thing. Well, I once raised my hand to say that I wanted Jesus into my life. That's not enough. I once walked down an aisle. That's not enough. I once had an experience that was profound. That's not enough. Our faith is not in experiences or in raising our hands. Our faith is in Jesus, the King. The pilgrims missed him because they weren't willing to make him king over everything. May we not miss him because we don't want to make him king over everything. It's good to be enthusiastic. It's good to be emotional. But if you rely on enthusiasm and emotion to motivate you to put Jesus as your king, you will fail. People who rely on emotion are often happy to make Jesus king for a day as long as they feel good. But sometimes, even most of the time, you will feel nothing when you follow Jesus. The faithful saints remain faithful even through dry and weary seasons. These pilgrims were willing to make Jesus king for a day, but not king of their lives. And we do the same. We do the same if we section off our lives into different quadrants to give him kingship over. We might know all the right songs, pray all the right prayers, read all the right books, and miss him. May we not miss him. Temple attendants. They said, we're unwilling to follow a king ever. The pilgrims at least said, we need a king sometimes. When we're feeling good, when things are going well. (laughs) The religious attendants, they say, I'm fine. I do not need you. I don't need a king. I am my own king. The reason the religious leaders did not think they needed a king is because they did not want to submit to anyone but themselves. They did not recognize they needed to be rescued from their own sin. They were willing to lead their own lives in the way they thought best because they did not want to bow the knee and submit to Jesus. They did not want to admit that there was something somehow in them that was lacking. That only Jesus can fix. They refuse to admit that. Will you? Following Jesus, this is good for us to remember. Those of us that follow Jesus, it means we lay down our rights. We lay down our expectations. We lay down our wants and our needs and everything. He is our king. We are property. There are some here who are not followers of Jesus. And you, 
The thing that revolts you is the fact of submission. Submitting to someone besides yourself. Maybe you're independent and you say, I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone to guide me. I don't need anyone to direct me. But you do. See, what you don't recognize is what the temple attendants who are absent from our story, they did not recognize. They were trapped. They were trapped and enslaved to sin. And the punishment for sin is death. Jesus has come to release us from the trap of sin and the punishment of death by dying for our sins so that any who will come to him as king, he will welcome into his, not just his kingdom, but into his family. You need him to be your king. (coughs) So which are you tempted by? Are you more like the pilgrims who are willing to make Jesus king for a day or king of part of your life? Or are you more like the temple attendants, unwilling to let Jesus have anything of you? He is king. He is king. No matter what we think. And if we don't humble ourselves and submit to him, we miss him. We miss him, even if he's in plain sight, as he has been here in Mark chapter 11. May we not miss him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that. I pray that we will not miss you, Lord. I pray for Christians in this room who are unwilling to submit, Lord, and unwilling to give all the different areas in their lives, Lord. Pray for people who are unwilling to confess and recognize and repent areas of secret sin or different dispositions, Lord. I, I pray that you would um, I pray that you would convict us, Lord. Lord, we want you to be king of our lives, not just king for a day. And Lord, I pray that you would convict us. I pray that you would open our eyes to this truth. I pray for those here who refuse to make you king over their lives because they don't think they need you. Lord, I pray that you would walk them through circumstances that show they do. Pray, Lord, that, that we would be a people as a church that would Submit to our King. Not just get excited in those moments when the emotions run high. But be those that follow Him no matter what or where you lead. Help us, Lord. Help us. May we be the people that call back blessing to you. Blessed is the King from the house of God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.